All right, so let's look at Mark chapter 12, just starting in verse 1. There's a couple of parables that, that we go through. Last week, we looked at the story of, 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 of uh, the fig tree as Jesus came into Jerusalem and he saw the fig tree and, and he cursed it. Then he went into Jerusalem into the temple courts and he turned over the tables. And we talked about how sim- symbolically this was representing the old, the passing of the old in the old covenant and moving towards this new covenant that was being established, that Jesus is teaching is, is going to be established. And it would be a, a new covenant that would be marked by fruitfulness. It was not supposed to be a new covenant that was still marked by the same things that the old covenant did. It wasn't to be marked just by the law and going through the motions and making sure we showed up at the temple at the right times and saying the right prayers and doing the right things all at the right times. And then God was pleased and said there was a new covenant, a new relationship, a new way, not only for the church... Uh, as with the established church, but in our lives. That there's a new way of living that actually expresses the kingdom. And so we looked at that. Uh, and then the story goes on. Jesus, Jesus taught in the temple, and then he left. And then he went into this, this, this time of teaching in, Ma- in Mark chapter 12, where he addressed specifically all uh, the religious leaders of that time. In, in three parables, he covered... All of the different guys who were in charge, political leaders, in, in church leaders, uh, in, these, in a handful of parables. From the parable of the tenants to the, to the parable where he, where he talked about or t- taught on uh, paying taxes to Caesar and the marriage at the resurrection. And then he goes into what we'll talk about today, the greatest commandment. And so first, the parable of the tenants, Mark 12, verses 1 through 2. What's happening here is Jesus begins to teach and he's beginning to confront the chief priests... Uh, the teachers of the law, and the elders of the church at that time. Um, he's confronting them, and he talks about the story of, of a man who, uh, who, um, who built this vineyard. And, and this man is represented by God, represents God. God, God built this vineyard, and he, he built it, and he uh, made a wine press, and he built a, a barrier of protection around it, and he built a watchtower, and he, and he rented it out to this guy, who did not steward it well, representing some of the leaders and the religious people of the early church in, in the Old Covenant. That they had these opportunities, they had all these things that God brought to them, and they didn't steward it well. They were bad tenants, they were bad renters. And, and it talks about how God brought to them uh, people to come and help them, brought uh, people to come and see the fruit and to collect of that for God, for the owner at that time, and there was nothing. And that they were received, they were actually beaten and bruised, and these were representing the Old Testament prophets coming in. And then it says, and then, then there was another that came and you killed him. And it's representing of Jesus who was coming. Um, and the scripture tells us that they were, at, at this moment, they were very clear. I think in verse 12, they knew, it says that they knew he had spoken the parable against them. And so in this parable of the tenants, Jesus was confronting the chief priests. If you have your outline, you can follow along. This, I'm going to give a quick point from each one of these parables and move in. To set up where we're going. Jesus confronts the chief priests and the teachers for their poor stewardship of the church and God's provision. And they knew it. They knew he was pointing the finger at them. He wasn't just telling a story about a wine press that wasn't used right or a vineyard that was neglected. He was talking about the church, the people of God. So he confronted the chief priests and the teachers and the elders in the parable of the tenants. And then... After he taught that and he confronted them, the Pharisees 
uh, and the Herodians, the scripture says that they were sent to them. The Pharisees were the leaders and the teachers of the Jews. And the Herodians were the leaders and those who were, uh, those who were, were in favor of the Roman uh, 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 um, occupancy, okay? The, uh, of the Roman leadership, occupation, okay? And they came to him and they, and they asked Jesus, is it legal, is it lawful for us um, to pay taxes which represents more than just taxes, to Caesar. And they were trying to trap him, and they were trying to get the people to rise up against Jesus. Because if he said, you, could, you should pay taxes to Caesars, then the, the, the Jews and the Pharisees would be angry. But then if they said, uh, no, you should not uh, uh, pay taxes to Caesars, then uh, the Herodians and those who were in favor of Roman occupation would rise up against him. But instead, he was very wise, and he said, who's... who's Whose uh, picture is on your coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar. And he told him, he says, give to Caesar what is his and give to God what is God's. And so in this, in this story, in this, in this lesson, paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus literally outwits the Pharisees and the Herodians in regards to their allegiances. To where they were bending the knee. He, he confronted them and outwitted them and then, in this. And then he goes on. And uh, the Sadducees came to, the, to, came to him. And the Sadducees were those who did not believe in the resurrection. And they confronted him about uh, uh, this thing specifically in relationship to marriage after death. And what would it be like, essentially? Who would be married to who in heaven and all of these things? And Jesus confronted them with their own, with, with the law. And basically said, you don't even know the, the scriptures. And he accused them. And he corrects the point here. Jesus corrects the Sadducees about the resurrection and specifically about life after death. And he tells them he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, we're seeing that this pattern of of Jesus coming to give life and life to the full. I mean, he literally tells them, are you not narrow because you don't know the scripture or because you don't know the power of God? Which one is it? And then Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34, it goes into what we know as the greatest commandment. Many of us have heard this story, heard this scripture many times. In this, Jesus teaches the fulfillment of the law. Jesus teaches the fulfillment of the law. So let's read this and just a couple quick thoughts on it. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all commandments... Which is the most important? So they're continuing to test him. They're seeing his authority and they're trying to discredit him. They're trying to get him to to mess up his words, trying to get him to say something and to trap him. Each each time he does something more amazing and comes with more authority and changes the way, tries to change the way that they're living. Uh, And and he confronts the the leaders of, of, of religion in that day with their own religion they're looking for other ways to entrap him so that they can, literally this time we know, to kill him. Which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so he hits pretty much every area of our life we could possibly offer to anyone at any time, at any place. The second is this, love your neighbor 
as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. No commandment greater than these. In the the other Gospels, it talks about love God uh, with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then it goes on to say that all of the laws and the prophet hang on these two. Literally, the word hang is translated as a hinge. You can imagine a hinge or or a hook that's connected to a wall. And the law, or the love of loving God and, and loving um, your neighbor is that, is that hook that's, that's attached to the, to the foundation or attached to this strong thing. And he's saying that the law, all the things that we go through and check the box, all the things that we do uh, to try and earn our salvation or earn acceptance with God, all of the laws and all the problems, all the things where it is our attempt to try and get closer to God because of how we behave, All of the things we do for God, he's saying, hangs on this hinge. And if the motivation is not loving God or loving others, that hinge is broken. It's no longer there. So those things fall to the ground. They're worthless. So the greatest commandment is to love God with everything we have and to love our neighbor as ourself. Verse 32 says, well said, teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one And there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. It's a pretty cool moment. He was tested. He was tried. And he just stood up to the point where they were like, we can't trap this guy. We can't do it how we've been doing it. In here, there is a value that we see. We're seeing these contrasts between the, the law and uh, the new, this new covenant, the old covenant and the new covenant, and the way that it's expressed and the way we live it out. What Jesus taught was the fulfillment of the law. You see that thread throughout the Old Testament, but we missed it over and over and over and over. That we came to a place where the leaders of the law were just going through this list, yet their hearts were far from God. And you saw so much hypocrisy and you saw so much judgment and you saw so much uh, piousness and arrogance and uh, holier than thou stuff. And you saw all of this. It was so crazy. Uh, you read throughout scripture, and, and Jesus especially goes on in, in, in here in a, in a few weeks. We'll see where he talks about the accusations to the teacher of the law that all they did was stand on the street corners and pray really long and really loud and use big words so everybody thought they were awesome. And their big flowing robes, and they loved the attention, and they loved being above each uh, other people, and they loved hoarding everything that they had. And They put the law above everything else. And as long as they did the things that were outlined specifically, they pretty much did anything else that they wanted. But they put the law above anything else. And Jesus continues to teach two priorities. To love God and to love others. If we ever get to the place where we wonder, God, should I be doing this? We could go back and just ask the question, am I loving God? Am I loving others through this? How does this impact my relationship with God? How does this impact my relationship with others? Who am I putting first in this moment? Am I putting God first? Am I putting others first or myself? Loving God and loving others. And in doing this, 
In doing so, Jesus does a couple things very specifically. One, he's redefining our relationship with God. And we know this, we've taught this over and over and over, that we can never do enough to deserve to be forgiven for our sins. We could never do enough to earn our place. And God is just, so there must be payment. So Christ came, died for us, that we could stand before him and we're declared, uh, we're declared innocent. But it's so interesting because the story goes from innocent to child of God. He redefines our relationship and he calls us, Jesus calls us friend and we become a child of God. And he changes the way things are done. I think in Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus quotes some of the scripture from the Old Testament. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you understand what good news that is to us? When we talk about the gospel meaning good news, this is good news. If Christ came to call not the righteous, but the sinners, why then are we so tempted to pretend we're so righteous? Why do we feel the pressure among each other in relationship and in church or whatever we do? Why do we feel so much pressure to do that when Jesus says, I just wish you would go and learn what it means that God desires mercy more than anything else, more than any sacrifice we can offer him. He desires mercy. And not just mercy, but to learn to love mercy. That we look at the mercy God has extended to us and we feel it and understand it so deeply that we're so thankful for his mercy that he's given us. That just the concept and the idea of mercy becomes so cherished to us that we can't help but express that in our lives to others. That is our lot. I think if we would spend more time focusing on learning to love mercy... Some other things would fall in place. We would try to do and would fail over and over and over. But Jesus redefines our relationship with God. And then Jesus redefines our neighbor or who is our neighbor. And looking at this, every time I see love God, love your neighbor, my mind and my heart goes to Luke chapter 10. It is a parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's earlier in Jesus' journey where he ran in to another Pharisee, okay? And he asked him, actually, actually scripture calls him an expert in the law. And he was, gonna, he was testing him in a similar way. And he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think a lot of us can identify with that. We just, okay, let's just, get, let's just cut to the chase here. What do I, what do I have to do? Okay, God, just tell what do I have to do? I have to walk forward, I have to kneel and pray a prayer at the altar. What, what do I have to do, God, so that I'm so I'm safe? So I just know. What do I have to do? And Jesus answered, What what do you read in the law? What does the law say? He says, How do you read it? And the expert in the law answered, it says, Love your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus replied, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. In verse 29, it's interesting. It says that he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? So we're looking at this idea of redefining our neighbor. And he asks the same question we might ask. Yeah, but who is my neighbor? That guy's not really my neighbor. He doesn't live on my street. He lives behind me. We share a fence, but is that, is that really my neighbor? I don't know. He's kind of a jerk. 
And Jesus answered with the story we've heard before, the parable of the Good Samaritan. In verse 30, it says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, So too a Levite, which were the religious leaders, they did the religious duties, uh, for the Hebrews, the tribe of Israel that were responsible for that, Moses was, of the, was a Levite. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the, by on the other side. I read a commentary that, that mentioned, isn't it interesting that they didn't just pass by, that each of those went way out of their way to pass by on the other side. So, and, and his claim was, I wonder if they did that so that they could say, oh, well, no, I never saw the guy. Or I, never, I never heard the guy. They passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was the most rejected people uh, uh, of this time and to a Jewish person. In fact, it was customary if a Samaritan was walking towards a Jewish man, he, he wouldn't just ignore him or walk by or whatever. Literally, he would spit on the ground, step to, to the side and take a different path. This, this is what's so beautiful about the story about Jesus with a woman at the well who was a Samaritan. And he passed through Samaria when typically they would go around Samaria so as not to be defiled by the people they felt were not as good as them. A lot of lessons there already. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then the he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them the innkeeper. He said, look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. I love this verse. He said, he, when he saw him, he took pity on him. The others, the priests, you know, the priest and the Levite, the religious people, they pretended not to see him. And, and this Samaritan... He, not only did he see him, but he saw him through the lens of mercy and he took pity on him. And then Jesus asked the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? Which one do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He didn't say which, which one do you think was the most awesomest. Which one do you think pleased God more? Which one would you be? He said, which one was the neighbor? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, four very powerful words we see throughout scripture, go and do likewise. So Jesus is redefining neighbor. He's not just defining it as someone who we just live next to. He's defining neighbor as someone we can help. Jesus doesn't define neighbor by proximity. He defines it by mercy. In our day and age, with who we are and where we are, with what we have and what we know, the whole world is our neighbor. How in the world can we see the crisis in the world, the poverty, people dying from things that you and I take for granted. 
the orphan crisis. 200 million orphans in the world. I heard a statistic that for every one orphan in the world, there are seven proclaiming Christians in the world. How in the world can we hear and learn of how many people are held captive in slavery today? Forced labor, human trafficking, sex slavery, child soldiers, and sit and do nothing. Jesus redefined our neighbor. And it is our immediate neighbors. Because there are needs in every community. There are physical, spiritual, emotional, relational needs everywhere you go. I heard recently someone said when when there's such need in the world, many people ask, well, where is God? And he says, what I want to ask is, where are the people of God? When he saw him, he took pity on him. And he helped him and he poured himself out for him. Which of these three is his neighbor? The one who had mercy on him. I went and was looking up a little bit this. I was drawn to this idea of Jerusalem to Jericho. Saying that this man went from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's a, this is a significant travel. It's about eight. This, there's a road between Jerusalem and Jericho that's about 18 miles long, and it's an incredible road because Jerusalem, although Jericho is northeast of Jerusalem, they talk about going down uh, to Jericho because it drops over 3,000 feet in 18 miles from 2,500 feet above sea level in Jerusalem down to uh, 800 or some, some odd feet. Uh, below sea level in Jericho. And, and uh, this, this, this path, as you go on this road, um, if you're to pass by, there, they say that there's a place where you, you, you go by the Mount of Olives, where so much happened. And they say there's this beautiful view of the city templescape of Jerusalem over your shoulder. And you go past Bethany before you go into Jericho. And I was just thinking, what is so significant in this journey and this road? And it hit me, literally it hit me this morning, I was thinking about it, that all of this took place literally in the shadow of Jerusalem, in the shadow of where all of these other things are going, where you, all these stories that are being told of Christ, all of these experiences where he shared mercy and offered love, where he was ultimately crucified, was all in this area on this road, was happening in the shadow of all these things that Jesus is asking, is, it has done. And then I went back and I'm looking at this scripture again uh, that has always passed me by. Verse 34 of Mark 12 at the end. It says, well said teacher, the man replied, you're right in saying all these things. And then verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He said, you're not far. He didn't say you're there. He said, you're this close. He says, you get it. You're this close. You're standing in the shadows of everything that I'm doing. You're this close, but he's not there yet. He knew, but he's not there yet. The last thought here is knowing these truths opens the door to the kingdom, but seeking to live these truths move you to the other side. 
Jesus is teaching and ushering in this kingdom and this rule on earth as it is in heaven, where the people of God would rise and would be about the way of Jesus in their communities, in their schools, in their workplaces, and in their world. And knowing that is not enough. We are so close when we know this. But it's a reminder to each of us. In order to be this neighbor, we have to step through that doorway and actually begin to try and live and apply the things we're learning into our workplaces, into our social places, into our families, and where we might go. I want to read this last thought on this, on this uh, story from Matthew Henry, and then, and then we're, we'll close. He says, now this parable is applicable to another purpose than that for which it was intended and does excellently set forth the kindness and love of God our Savior towards sinful, miserable man. We were like this poor, distressed traveler. Satan, our enemy, had robbed us, stripped us, wounded us. Such is the mischief that sin has done done us. We were by nature more than half dead, twice dead, in trespasses and sins, utterly unable to help ourselves, for we were without strength. The law of Moses, like the priest and Levite, the ministers of the law, looks upon us, but has no compassion on us, gives us no relief, passes by on the other side, as having neither pity nor power to help us. But then comes the blessed Jesus, that good Samaritan. And they said of him, by way of approach, he is a Samaritan. He has compassion on us. He binds up our bleeding wounds, pours in not oil and wine, but that which is infinitely more precious, his own blood. He takes care of us and binds us put, and bids us put all the expenses of our cure upon his account. And all this, though he was none of us, till he was pleased by his voluntary condescension to make himself so, but infinitely above us. This magnifies the riches of his love and obliges us to say, how much are we indebted and what shall we render? Let's pray.